You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. And that means that when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible reading is from Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. I will be reading from the CSB version. Please follow along in your own Bibles, and the passage will also be displayed on the screen. But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to the husbands, so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach, so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Saviour in everything. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous and godly way in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Almighty and loving Father, may the words I speak now be your words. May you imprint them into our hearts and work, so that it might bring forth in us the fruit of good works. We we pray this for the honour and praise of your name. Amen. Uh, a few years ago, I visited another church, uh, and can I tell you, uh, it was beautiful. It has sleek lighting, elegant chairs, and the slides were stunning. Uh, I'm not a musical person, but even the choir of guitars on the stage were gorgeous. But it wasn't just the look of the church that was beautiful. The people were beautiful too, literally. Uh, the welcomers didn't stop smiling. The music leader was the type of guy that everyone wants to date. And it goes without saying, the pastor was handsome too. If only that could be true of our church. (laughs) The whole church, including its people, were aesthetically pleasing. They were visually beautiful. I usually feel like I'm an 8 out of 10, but that day I couldn't help but feel like a 5. But it made me wonder... What actually makes a church beautiful? 
Uh, last week we began with the question, what does a healthy church look like? And we saw that the key to a healthy church is godliness. Godliness is the goal. A truly healthy church doesn't just know the gospel, it loves and lives out the gospel. And in today's passage, we're going to ask, what does a beautiful church look like? And we're going to see that it's not the type of beauty I saw in that other church. No, a beautiful church is a picture of godly living between one another. When we see the good of the gospel worked out not only in our own lives, but in our life together as a church. And in verses 1 to 10, Paul firstly calls us to relationships of good works. And then in verses 11 to 15, he shows us the motivation for those good works. He starts off with the what, and then he goes on to the why. Let's begin by looking at the what. If you look with me at verses 1 and 15, Paul begins and ends this letter by urging Titus to proclaim things consistent with sound, literally healthy teaching. Proclaim these things. But notice how in verse 1 he doesn't write, you have to proclaim healthy teaching. No, he writes, you have to proclaim things consistent with healthy teaching. Uh, Don't just give them good theology, tell them how to live it out. Uh, It's like buying your daughter her first bicycle. You don't just buy her a bicycle just for the sake of it. You buy it so she can actually ride it. But for her to ride the bicycle, you need to also teach her how to ride it. Buying her bicycle and you teaching her goes together. In the same way, Paul is telling Titus, don't just buy them the bike, teach them how to ride it. Preach the behavior that goes with the gospel. Because the pattern of the gospel sets the pattern for our lives. Those things consistent with healthy teaching are good works grounded in the gospel. Can you see what Paul is calling us to do, or calling Titus to do? In verses 2 to 10, he's calling him to promote godliness-focused, gospel-motivated discipleship. A discipleship that's consistent with and motivated by the gospel. And the purpose of our discipleship is not mere intellectual information, no, it's spiritual transformation. Uh, let me firstly step you through these three sets of relationships, and then I'll, I'll highlight some common themes that run through them. Uh, if Titus 1 is about elders, the caretakers of God's household, then Titus 2 is about the one others of God's household. It's about you and me. It's about the relationships between older and younger men, older women and younger women, and masters and slaves. Paul paints a picture of godly living across these three sets of relationships within the church. It's a beautiful picture of older men and women discipling younger men and women in godliness and good works. In verses 2 to 3, older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous, not slaves to excessive drinking. 
Paul then exhorts the older women to commit themselves to discipling younger women. Verses 4 to 5. Older women are to teach and encourage young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind and submissive to their husbands. Uh, let me be clear about what the text is not saying. It's not saying that women can't have a paid job or that they have to be a stay-at-home mom, though that is good in its own right. It's also not saying that this only applies to you if you're married or have children. Rather, it's saying that older women should encourage younger women to conduct themselves in a way where, verse 5, God's word will not be slandered. Paul then swings back to Titus and the older men of the church and likewise encourages them to do the same thing. Verses 6 to 8. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Uh, Can you see what Paul is showing us here? Godly living is not something you do by yourself. It's done together in our church family. This is a biblical picture where men disciple men and women disciple women. Now, this doesn't mean that men and women can never gather around the word with each other. In fact, we should. In 1 Timothy 5, it says that we need godly, close, and healthy relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ. But when it comes to ongoing discipleship of one another, Titus 2 is a beautiful vision of brotherly, and sisterly discipleship. Uh, One of the best things about uh, being the youngest sibling is being able to look up to my older brothers. Uh, What I do is uh, I learn from all their mistakes and imitate all their good works. Uh, That's why out of the three of us, uh, I'm the best basketball player. (laughs) Uh, Let this show on the record. But do you have older brothers or sisters that you can look up to in our church? are not just peers or friends, but godlier men and women. Or if you're the older brother or sister, how can you make yourself an example to your younger siblings? Examples not of worldly success or relational happiness, but godliness. And lastly, Paul addresses the relationship between slaves and masters in verses 9 to 10. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything, are to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness. These were Christian slaves who have accepted the gospel and so easily abused their newfound freedom in Christ. But Paul says, stay faithful to your masters and serve them with integrity. Now you might be wondering, uh, can we draw a connection between slaves and masters then to our jobs today. On one level, not directly, because our lives don't belong to our bosses, uh, even though some of you might feel like it. But on another level, we can carry the principles over. And here it is in verse 10. We must adorn or beautify the teaching of God in everything. Even when we feel like we're unfairly treated at work, we must continue to live out the gospel to submit, respect, and be a good worker. When others look at you, your work ethic, speech, and the quality of the work, do they see 
the beauty of the gospel. Now, let me now take a step back and highlight some common themes that run through these three sets of discipling relationships. Uh, firstly, notice the relationship between the gospel and good works. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Paul calls for godliness-focused, gospel-motivated discipleship. He tells Titus in verse 7, Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Uh, the, good, the gospel and good works should be like uh, Timon and Pumbaa, complementary and inseparable. You can't have one without the other. You need both. But I suspect that some of us emphasize our discipleship being gospel-motivated, but not godliness-focused. Uh, we pride ourselves on being deep in the Word, but it might not always work out in the way we live. But others of us might naturally emphasize discipleship that's godliness-focused, but not gospel-motivated. We pride ourselves on being practical and seeing real change in people's lives, but it might not be grounded in the Word. What do you naturally emphasize? Discipleship that is gospel-motivated or discipleship that's godliness-focused? As I reflect on how I've been preparing these sermons throughout Titus, I spend so much more time understanding the passage, but so much less time working it out in my life. Even in our BLT small groups and our one-to-ones, I suspect that we naturally think more about the meaning of the passage than how it shapes our lives. The aim of the gospel is not just so you know it, it's so you live it. Our discipleship must be both gospel-motivated and godliness-focused. Secondly, notice the theme of self-control. It's explicitly mentioned three times in verses 2, 5, and 6, but implicitly, it's everywhere. And I suspect there's a reason why Paul emphasizes it. Self-control means not giving into sin, not giving into our fleshly desires. It's saying no to our old self and yes to our new. No to godlessness and yes to godliness. No to the world and yes to Jesus. That's why self-control is the evidence of gospel transformation. Paul calls us to be self-controlled in everything, in our head, in our hearts, in our hands. I wonder if the area where we practice the least self-control in is our hearts, because no one can see it. We let our hearts wander to places it shouldn't, lust, envy, greed. Rather than letting God's word guide our feelings, we let everything else shape our feelings. Rather than letting the gospel satisfy our desires, we seek anything else to satisfy our desires. Uh, Doesn't the world tell us, you are what you feel? Let your heart run wild. How foolish is that? Thomas Cranmer believed what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, 
for everything you do flows from it. Self-control begins in our hearts and ends with our actions. What might it look like for us individually to have godly self-control? Here's some ideas. It's not the Bible, but wisdom. It might look like setting appropriate physical and emotional boundaries in a relationship when you're not yet married. It might mean setting boundaries for your work so you don't make it your identity. It might look like being wise in how much you spend on the things you buy. It might mean saying no to hanging out with family and friends on a Sunday so we can gather with God's people each week. And what might it look like for us as a church to have godly self-control? It might look like controlling our tongues so we don't gossip or slander. It might not look like eating out every second Sunday because it's way too expensive. But instead, cooking at home at home, cooking a meal at home and inviting some people over. Or it might look like not buying into the narrative of security and comfort, but instead taking gospel risk to further God's kingdom. Self-control begins in our hearts and ends with our action. And finally, and most importantly, notice the purpose of our good works. We've hinted at this already, but did you notice the three whys of purposes in verses 2 to 10? Verse 5, so that God's word will not be slandered. Verse 8, so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. And verse 10, so that they may adorn or make beautiful the teaching of God our Savior in everything. All three purpose statements relate to the beauty of God before a watching world. Paul wants the church in Crete to be blameless and not bring shame upon Jesus. Beauty should characterize the life of a church. We've been looking at a beautiful picture of godly living within the church, and I hope that as you were listening, it made you go, yes, that's what a beautiful church should look like. But if we're honest, when we look at ourselves, when we look around, we don't quite meet those standards, do we? Some of us individually, perhaps, but we're primarily a household, a family of God. Instead of living out the gospel, we too often have too few good works. Instead of being self-controlled in our hearts and our actions, we too often let gossip, greed, and godlessness run rampant. Instead of describing our church as beautiful, maybe at best we are 5 out of 10. But the truth is, we're not beautiful fundamentally because of good works, though that is important in its own right. We, Cross and Crown, are a beautiful church because we have a beautiful gospel. We have a beautiful saviour. We've seen the what? In verses 11-15, Paul now shows us the big why. Uh, the only way we'll be a truly healthy and beautiful church is if we're convinced of the beauty of the gospel itself. Uh, it's like when you watch a K-drama, uh, you see all the really good-looking men with their nice hair perm. Uh, you can't help but think, I want to be like them. 
And so you go and get a hairpin for yourself. When we see the beautiful gospel, it's like watching that K-drama and being compelled to be beautiful ourselves. The gospel needs to be the motivation for good works amongst God's people. And Paul compels us with the beauty of the gospel by looking at the past, the present, and the future. Let's quickly look back at the past to see what we've already received. Verse 11. For the grace of God through Jesus has appeared, which has brought us salvation. Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9 reminds us that we have been saved by grace through faith. Not by our own works, but all through Jesus' obedience on the cross. When it comes to our salvation, our works don't contribute a single thing to it. It's not because of anything we've done, but all because of everything Jesus did. Jesus didn't just preach the gospel. Jesus didn't just perfectly live the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the gift God has given to us free of charge, and in him we have salvation. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, last week we saw the hope of eternal life that's offered to all, a sure and steady hope. And the only way to receive that hope is to receive the gift of Jesus into your life. Friends, remember what we already have, salvation through the grace of God. Now let's read what we're instructed to do in the present. Verse 12 tells us, the grace of God instructs us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way. Once again, Ephesians 2 verse 10 reminds us that we are not saved by works, but we are saved for good works. You might think that knowledge is the goal of the gospel, but godliness is the goal of the gospel. The gospel exists for the sake of godliness, and genuine godliness is expressed through good works. So we live in light of our salvation with godliness as the goal in the present age. And healthy doctrine is important because it is the means by which godliness is made possible. By our own effort, we're not able to do any good at all. But we have a beautiful gospel which compels us to good works. The gospel is why we can say no to sin and yes to self-control. The gospel is why we can say no to greed and yes to generosity. The gospel is why we can say no to this world, but yes to eternal life. Jesus denied himself so that he could save us. How could we not deny ourselves as we wait for an eternity with him? And finally, as we seek to live in godliness, focus not just on what we've received in the past or what we must do in the present, focus on where we'll be in the future. Verse 13 tells us that we are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I notice the double appearing that holds these verses together. In verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. And in verse 13, we wait for the appearing 
of the glory of our great God and Savior. We live between the two great appearings. We live between grace and glory. Uh, It's like looking at a beautiful sunset, the grace of God descending upon us. And as surely as the sun will set, so too will it rise. We know that the glory of God awaits us at dawn. And as we wait in the middle of the night between the appearings of grace and glory, we live in godliness like stars shining against the backdrop of a dark and hopeless world. Imagine that. Isn't that beautiful? Grace then, glory later, godliness now. Verse 14, we are a people who have been redeemed, saved, and purchased as a people for God's own possession so that we might live in godliness. We are God's healthy and beautiful people. Friends, when uh, someone walks into Cross and Crown, what do you want them to see? A beautiful pastor? That might not be possible. Uh, That lonely guitar sitting up on the stage? Or the better than average slides? Or do you want them to see the beauty of the gospel in our lives? Do you want them to see Jesus, our beautiful Savior, the grace and glory of God? Friends, we're not beautiful because of what we've done, are doing, or will ever do. We're a beautiful church because we have a beautiful gospel. We have Jesus, our beautiful Savior. How can we not reflect his beauty, his glory and grace to the world? Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for giving us your son Jesus, our beautiful Savior. Thank you that through the gospel you have made us a beautiful church. Help us be a church marked by godliness and help us be a church eager to do good works so that we might reflect the beauty of Christ to this world. We pray this in the glorious name of your son Jesus. Amen.